Hello, and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast, where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. I'm your host, Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita, and my co-host this week is our Senior Fellow, May Lamb. Hi, May. Hi, Emma. We've been really fortunate at Per Capita to have May work with us as part of our team over the last uh, year or so, and she's done some really incredible work uh, here for Per Capita, um, which we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, May, why don't you tell our audience a bit about yourself? Okay, well, uh, I'm a baby boomer and the daughter of migrants uh, who came to Australia who really believed in education because when I was born, getting a good education meant that all sorts of employment opportunities were open to you and uh, I found when I went into unemployment services working for a peak not-for-profit body uh, of organisations uh, working to solve unemployment in local communities around the nation that that isn't true for so many people. Mm. Um, and I was working for this organisation, Jobs Australia, in the 90s and saw over the next two decades what happened when the government uh, outsourced employment services so my research and policy work uh, at Per Capita is informed um, by a practical experience of the intersection of government and the not-for-profit sector um, as, a, as that has unfolded over time. And in particular, I'm interested in uh, the ways that innovation uh, is needed in, and can be achieved in those services uh, and how we can use data uh, and different models of working together across sectors uh, to get better outcomes for unemployed and disadvantaged people. Yes, well, um, May's you know downplayed a little bit of her expertise there. Of course, May has worked really at the coalface of employment services in this country now uh, for more than 30 years uh, and internationally as well. So we were extremely fortunate and happy uh, when May agreed to come to work for us, particularly to focus on the work that we're doing around employment services reform. Um, and you have spent quite some time on a very detailed and a submission to the current Workforce Australia inquiry, a piece of work that I'm really proud of. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that sub and exactly what's at stake with this inquiry? Yeah, so after 25 years of outsourcing and, uh, and, and that clearly not working mm. either for unemployed people or for employers, uh, I was thrilled to come and write this submission. Yeah. Um, the new government has brought a reform appetite uh, to its overview and uh, relook at employment services, and uh, and the chair of the inquiry, Julian Hill, has really led on some searching questions mm. about what's gone wrong and what kinds of things we might uh, need to look at in in conceiving and delivering a better system. So, submitters to the inquiry were invited to be bold and courageous yep. in in their critique and and. Uh, their ideas for a better system. Uh, employment services is the biggest procurement spend outside defence. Yeah, that's for this something country. people don't realise, isn't it? We spend yeah. more um, actually outsourcing the services we give to unemployed people to private profit and for profit and not for profit companies than any other government contract outside the defence sector. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of money. It's amazing, and one of the things that uh, has been really obvious is that not nearly enough attention has been paid to research and development of yeah. that system or appraising and evaluating the results that it's been getting. So this inquiry has got a lot hanging on it yeah. because since employment services were outsourced in the mid-90s, the labour market has changed profoundly. Yes. There's a lot of a 
a lot of change in the ways that people are employed, the skills they need, uh, and and the ways they can get into work and keep work at a living wage. Mm. And, just and the so jobs our system that, has to be fit for purpose. Just for the jobs that are available now, right? When, yeah. when we go back to the 90s when this decision was made to privatise what used to be delivered by government, we still had a lot more people working in manufacturing. There were career yeah. paths in those sectors that meant an entry-level job would lead to a, pro a progression of career. That's not the case in many of the service-based sectors that we have now. That's right, yep, absolutely. And yet at the same time, people need more skills and education to do the jobs that are available. Yeah. So we need a system that can take that on board as well. It's the complex intersection of uh, many different aspects of the system, industrial relations, skills and training, unemployment programs, and how communities work yeah. uh, that, you know, that has made it surprisingly out of view for the public in general. And I think this inquiry is a good way to put it back squarely mm. uh, into the public domain for dialogue uh, and, and better accountability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've often said when reflecting on this system that the average Australian assumes that the employment services system is working to get people into jobs. But actually, over the years, it's devolved to be actually more of a, a compliance regime yeah. for income support payments. Yeah. 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 So what, what were the key findings you uncovered in, I mean, a, a lot of research that you've done, a lot of consultation with people around the country using your own extensive networks uh, and bringing that experience to bear um, in a really detailed submission that's, that's gone to that inquiry and, and continuing work that we'll do in this space. What are the key findings you found when you were doing that research for this important piece of work? First, Emma, I'm just going to say that the uh, full submission is on our website, yes. at the Capita's website, and it is super long, but it's signposted with headings. Yes. So anybody who's a policy nerd like me or who feels deeply passionate should go to an, our submission and look at it. www.percapita.org.au Thank you, Emma. <laughs> so uh, the... The main finding, and I've had a chance um, actually since we put in our submission to read others' submissions, and it, there's a clear consensus that full privatisation and competition in the outsourcing of employment services just hasn't worked. Complete failure. Complete failure. Yep. Started in 1997, it was meant to result in less bureaucracy, more focus on results, more diversity and innovation. Well, none of those things has come out. Mm. Uh, what we see instead is that outsourcing has generated a wide range of prescriptive practices that are driven by the centralised IT system and ironically driven by the risks that the government takes in uh, spending yeah. uh, all those billions of dollars on outsourced services. So they're rigid, rigid, they're prescriptive. The industry body for the providers themselves have said that. Uh, and what it means is that even though there is supposed to be competition between providers, the competition is to deliver exactly the same thing. So the work has become de-skilled. Mm. The frontline workers, uh, pretty much their work process flow and range of discretion is dictated by what's on those menus and pick lists and job plans and policies and rules and guidelines in the system. And so people while they're supposed to be case managed, really the experience of that they have in the system is that they are being hassled yep. to take any job, to apply for so many jobs that it's irritating employers, mm. um, and that's not working. So there's a double layer of compliance in the system, 
the compliance of unemployed people to undertake compulsory activities, mainly job search, but also work for the dole, skills training, and various other things like that. So they have to comply, but then the providers also have to comply with the federal government's rules uh, in the system. So uh, more recently, uh, we've seen uh, the carving up of the uh, caseload into a government-managed online self-help system. Yeah. That's taken about 150,000 people out of the system, which is a sensible move mm. because there's no point spending money on uh, hassling people to do things that... that they can do on they can do it on their own yeah but but the the criticisms of that move and I think it is valid to say uh, in a lot of ways the employment service providers were replicating things that people could do quite easily themselves but the criticism has been that the people that have moved to that system are the ones that the easiest to help that yeah. are the most capable of finding work and we've seen over the last decade a doubling of long-term unemployed the number of long-term unemployed people in the country. So there's a, there's a real indication there of the failure of privatised employment services to help those that are the most vulnerable to that level of exclusion from the labour market. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there's around uh, 50%, 47% to be precise, uh, of people on the uh, caseload in Workforce Australia have been out of work for 12 months or more. Mm at the same time some of those people do have a little bit of work so around a quarter yeah. are undertaking some kind of paid work but it's just not enough to get them off the caseload mm. so they're both doing a bit of paid work but also forced to top that up with other compliance activities which is arguably wasteful mm. and in our submission we've looked at the ways that there are much more nuanced means to assess what people need and what would help them get back into work. Yeah. And and we you, you say um, in your submission, you know, you know, you make the, the case very clearly um, that the system as it stands is is treating particularly long term unemployed people quite brutally, but it's also not serving employers. Yes. This is one of the extraordinary things that uh, that um, has been missed in our system, mm -hmm. which is meant to uh, provide a service to employers, but which employers have turned their backs on in the main. Uh, they are finding that they don't get the staff that are ready or right because they're just being pelted with resumes um, from people who don't necessarily have the skills that they need. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that that's an outcome of both of the mutual obligations regime requiring volume, applications and activity, uh, but also it's the result of employers' needs for skilled workers at that low end, at that entry level end, not really ever being properly assessed mm. or understood well. Mm. So uh, there is a lot more that could be done to understand and intermediate uh, the, the, the kinds of workers that employers need and to coordinate. So competition has been uh, failing employers just as much as it's been failing unemployed people, mm. perhaps more, because they don't even know who to work with mm. in, in looking for their skilled staff. Everybody's coming at them with offers, yeah. um, but not the right candidates for mm. their jobs. So there's new structures and vehicles needed to join the people together who might be right for the sorts of jobs that they have available. Yeah, I think I, I heard recently only about 4% of employers currently directly engage with the privatised employment services system. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in the um, 
in, a, in a job active uh, revision process, a platform, an online platform was created for employers to list their vacancies in a way that was meant to be streamlined, they're not using it. Mm, mm. Um, the, that, that, that platform of um, job listings for unemployed people is, is sucking most of its vacancies across from SEEK mm. and other uh, recruitment yeah. online services. Well, the government was warned by many people, <laughs> including per capita, not to replicate SEEK, but there you go. Um, look, so May, the big policy challenges and the work needed for, for ongoing research, for practice development in this space, in your expert view, what are those big policy challenges now? I think one of the biggest policy challenges we have is to define what success in employment looks like mm -hmm. really well. Mm -hmm. So at the moment we have a system that is designed for ensuring that people will get off the dole. Yeah. That's success yes. for the government. Yeah. Get off the dole. Now what that does, and we don't have long-term data on this, so we need that too, mm. is that it bounces people out of the system of claiming yeah. and then into a job and then back in again. Mm. So we don't have an approach that understands what their aspirations are, yeah. what are the drivers of work for them, and what are the things outside the control even of employment services providers that are making the match not possible. And so many of those things are structural. They're around things like uh, access to transport or affordable housing in the zones where the jobs are, um, or the availability of support services like things like mental health services mm. or the problems of debt or not mm. having a licence mm. and those kinds of things that we really need to understand better. So a combination of needs assessment yep. combined with what success looks like from the perspective of the person who's unemployed I think would be one single wonderful thing mm. to improve in the system. Mm. Another really important thing that is needed is the mapping and joining and weaving of all of the available skills training and community supports and social services that could be brought to bear on a better result for a person that's unemployed. And this is, gets a little bit tricky, but providers at the moment have opportunities to earn extra income besides case management by referring people to uh, employability skills training, which is supposed to prepare people for what employers are looking for, but they're pretty much generic rinse and repeat courses yeah. that just enable people to fulfil their mutual obligation activities. Mm. Um, and all too often delivered by subsidiaries of the same companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So related entities and so their business model can sometimes rely on referring <laughs> And in fact, the government set a rule that says you can't rely, refer more than 50% uh, if you've got one of those employability, employability skills uh, training contracts, uh, you can only refer up to 50% and you can be pretty damn sure they will be referring oh, as yeah, many as they can how they make their money, to how achieve that income stream. So that is not, that's, a, that's an income earner for providers and they would see that as being part of their important financial viability goals to achieve, but we just don't know how effective those sorts of things are. Mm. And uh, and what we're doing is we're missing the opportunity to really understand what is the problem and what is the difference because you've got a trainer up there that you've paid so much, they're going to, you know, refer to their lesson notes and just do the same thing again. Mm. They're supposed to be industry sector facing, some of them, and tailorable to that. But what you need is actual real employers talking to real people that they might engage and employ yeah. in, in, a, in a better design system. So much of what one would expect to be 
you know, basic functions of the system just don't seem to be happening at all. Yeah. I would love to do an analysis of the percentage of uh, funds spent on research and evaluation, research and <laughs> development in the system as a percentage of the overall spend on employment services. Yeah. Um, we need a great deal more independent rigour mm. uh, in appraising the outcomes and outputs of the system. Yeah. And in also appraising what it is that um, employers believe would be helpful to them uh, you know, in a better system. So I'm optimistic about the um, <laughs> announcement of the Evaluator General role yes, and, yeah. uh, and the Treasury unit that's going to look at value for money. Mm. Um, I think that you know, whether they look at employment services specifically, that is exactly the kind of thing that we have to have more yeah. scrutiny about our results, but also a stronger innovation agenda. I mean, the government has spent a huge amount of effort and time over the whole period of employment services outsourcing, developing an IT system that holds all the data inputs about job seekers, about what they're doing, what their job plans should be, but it's mainly compliance focused mm. about pay terms for contractor providers and mutual obligations adherence by people who are unemployed. They do not use that system mm. to actually explore in much more sophisticated ways that are readily available now what, um, what we might learn from people coming through the system. Mm. So that data and IT piece is critical and I think we could be a lot more um, contemporary and diverse and innovative in exploring how we can learn about the two most critical <laughs> customers of the system. Yes, yeah. I mean, essentially what, what you're driving at there is that there's a whole heap of information available to us that we're simply not listening to uh, it, to develop a system that would actually help people find work, help employers find staff, support people with barriers. And, and you alluded earlier to, you know, for example, um, understanding people's mental health conditions and so mm. on. And we know for a fact that about just under 30% of people currently on JobSeeker, so um, not on disability support payment, but on JobSeeker have a disability, a recognised disability and a partial capacity to work. About another 12 to 15% have a recognised mental health condition that gives yep. them a partial capacity to work. Um, and yet since the budget last in earlier last month was handed down um, with a, you know, fairly small increase to the overall rate of job seeker, we've seen a lot of nasty attacks in the right-wing media in particular on dole bludgers. Now, is there evidence, May, and I've heard, you know, the, the chair of the inquiry, say, Julian Hill, say he, he, he keeps hearing from people that there's only about 5% of, of those on the caseload that seem genuinely not to want to work. Yeah. Is there evidence that people across the country don't want to work, that they'd rather be on the dole? Look, we just don't really <clears throat> have that evidence. No. And I think <laughs> the single biggest bit of evidence is the... Um, is the level of uh, job seeker payment, which is not something you would choose no, to live on. No, why would on. anyone choose to live um, on 360 so, bucks a week, right? Yeah. So uh, there's an obvious material reason that people uh, want to work mm. and get and get jobs. And I just want uh, to push back really yeah. explicitly at that dull bludger myth. Um, and yeah. I think, unfortunately, this argument's being had by the worst people on all sides of the debate. Uh, we know, the stats show us, that the, you know, the, the majority of people on JobSeeker now are mature people who've mm. had 
work, who may have stopped work because of illness or disability or caring responsibilities, becoming a parent. This idea that the, the job seeker cohort that is, is young men that don't want to work is yeah. a stereotype and a myth one that unfortunately is being supported by bad faith actors on both sides of the debate, but it's really damaging and really important that we say, no, there's a there's a significant number of people, almost a million people reliant on this system, being punished every day for not being able to work. Yeah. And I think it's also important to recognise that some people just don't have quite the level of skills that they need yeah, to be real considered by employers. Yeah. Language skills, foundation skills, the ability to turn on or use a computer. Basic uh, literacy skills. Yeah. Um, literacy issue. skills. Yeah. So, And that's a failure of society to have not invested in those people, to have not recognised those barriers. And we're spending all this money and yet we're not helping them. Yes, that's exactly right. So there is an interface there with the, um, the skill levels of a, a significant proportion of the caseload who are pushed into the indignity of applying for jobs that they know they won't get. Mm. And I think I feel that it's really pernicious to have these policies that are going to demoralise people over and over and over again, yeah. instead of saying, look, let's just engage you in the foundation skills training, uh, just that basic uh, skill development that you need for life, mm. as well as getting a job. And, uh, and let's work out, and again, we can be much more intelligent about this, let's work out what might be the kind of community work that interests you, that you would do in your community, mm. not just a pre-assigned thing that people have to turn up to yep. to put in the hours. Mm. So there's That's a, a lot radical more of a, concept, May, that we yeah. actually suggest that people do something useful to their local communities well, and exactly. learn and develop some skills at the same time. It's a double-barrelled <laughs> insult. One, you don't want to work. Mm. And two, you don't care about your community yeah. and we have to tell you what you're going to do in your community. Very paternalistic. So, so there are much more, you know, important ways, and this goes to data IT assessment and talking to people and understanding them, both individually and in cohorts and groups, um, to, to, to learn about the things that people can do and want to do. In a sense, I mean, this will be familiar to many people in the community sector, this is working with people's strengths. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and trusting that they uh, have this drive, this human drive mm. to, to be productive yeah. um, and active. And it does speak to per capita's long interest in, in a return to full employment as an explicit government policy, something the new federal government has, you know, indicated they want to pursue. Um, and just to, you know, clarify for people that but that doesn't mean forcing everybody into a job whether they're suitable for it or not. What it means is recognising that under the current economic system we have where we prioritise controlling inflation through the non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment, we are requiring, in order to manage the stability of monetary policy, a certain percentage of people to be unemployed. And you see that now the RBA saying, well, in order to get inflation down, we want to see unemployment go up. Well, it goes up amongst those people that are the most vulnerable and have the most barriers to work. So we are yeah. effectively managing the stability of money so that people's investments make good returns by punishing those people that live in the most vulnerable conditions in society. So that's why the employment services system is so critical to delivering a genuine full employment policy. It really is. And I just want to return to the point you made earlier, Emma, about uh, employers mm. and what the system could do for employers. 
I think that they haven't been uh, well served and will need support, encouragement and examples of practice to achieve this. But as you said, with our caseload, we have many people with only partial work capacity. Uh, so parents yep. who can only work in school hours, people with mental illness who need ad adaptive workplaces mm -hmm. to, to, to work in, people who have uh, only certain kinds of access to transport. What we need to do is pull together all our understanding and intelligence about this and go upstream into employers to interrogate and work with them about how their rosters work, yeah. what is the merit and value to them of having an endless churn of casual staff that, you know, that, um, that could be tr translated into uh, more quality, maybe fewer, but higher quality jobs that will uh, will be something that it would really be worth leaving the doll mm. to, 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 to stick in. Yeah. So that requires a much more proactive and completely different approach to working with employers than we've had before. But there are some embryonic examples of projects uh, that, are, that are looking at, at this interface and uh, we'll be arguing that the government should spend a lot more on that. Yeah. At the moment, it's only a tiny percentage that's focused on employer-facing work mm. and if we're going to have all our people with partial work capacity properly, um, you know, given real opportunities, mm. we have to work with employers. So that, that will obviously be one of the key recommendations we're making yep. in the submission. Can you quickly run us through some of the other key recs that, we're, that are in your sub and that we'll be pursuing over the coming months as Workforce Australia inquiry continues? Yeah. So just addressing that problem of a lack of coordination because of competition, we're arguing that there should be a public sector-led uh, local uh, jobs and skills coordinator. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the function of the local employment facilitator is outsourced, mm. so it's privatised. Yep. Uh, so that is ludicrous. Yep. That needs to come back to government. Mm. We need to retain in-house the expertise, the coordination capacity and the, uh, the uh, locally based, because that's another of our recommendations, that we need to go local, yep. uh, information about what best should be commissioned uh, in terms of case management and the mix of other services. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've recommended that. We actually do recommend that there should be some form of mutual obligations because we don't believe that it is right to just say, oh, it's all entirely voluntary. There's many well, good it's, things. it's effectively saying you're on your own to, to some people that might need it, right? Yeah. I think our challenge is there's nothing mutual about those obligations at the moment. All the obligation is on the side of the job seeker and there's nothing built into the system that seems to obligate the government yes. to support people to find work. Exactly. That would be genuinely reciprocal obligation yeah. and the government has failed in its reciprocal obligation back to people who are unemployed. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think some recognition that the way that mutual obligations operate at the moment are really like a big stick to whack people with if they're seen to be doing what someone determines to be the wrong thing. That those, rather than being obligations, they should be, um, like you say, a reciprocal agreement for what people need and providing what people need and recognising that different people have different capabilities, different skill levels, different level of physical or mental uh, ability will yeah. need different obligations, so to speak. Exactly. So nuancing those mutual obligations is critical. Mm. We recognise that there might be some people on the caseload who, uh, you know, who just need continued basic personal development or, yeah. or foundation skills mm. um, as as part of what they might do, mm. you know, um, mm. on the doll. Um, we are arguing that uh, that there are new models to look at 
that aggregate the, uh, the, 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 the people who might need exposure to work experience and skills. Yep. So group training models is one example of that. Um, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence has been um, running a not-for-profit labour hire company. Um, extraordinarily, out of the top 20 employers of uh, what was then called Job Active, now Workforce Australia, in 2018, 14 out of 20 were labour hire companies. Mm. And, uh, and that does show us that employers will go for, you know, an easier solution. If they have jobs and rosters to fill, they will look to somebody for, uh, they will look to a labour hire company for somebody who has been pre-screened, known to be trained, able to turn up and uh, and and uh, do the job. And that's why group training organisations work. It's a more expensive model than um, just a standard apprenticeship wage, so employers have to pay a bit more. Uh, we think that kind of intermediated approach does merit further exploration because there are some industries like care work or ag sector work where putting a one employer with one person who's trying a bit of a, a go at the work and may or may not work out, they obviously both sides need more support. Mm. So I think there's a lot in those intermediaries, but they would need to be industry by industry, place by place, explored and trialled. So, and that's where the role for government's really strong. Right? Absolutely. And, they and, need and, to lead on that. Yeah, and they need to be actively providing that. One of the other areas, obviously, that we've, we've uh, advocated for for a long time is that decisions that are made to uh, suspend someone's payments or uh, to, to take some kind of, at the moment, it's very overly punitive action and we hope we'll see a lot of reduction of that punitive approach. But even where that exists, it should be a decision made by an accountable public servant, not by a, a, a worker in a privatised job agency. That's exactly right. Providers are inherently conflicted in yeah. that. I'll give you a little example. I met a woman on the street just a couple of days ago who told me that she's with a provider and she said, they're trying to make me do a hairdressing course. She said, I don't want to do hairdressing. She said, I've never wanted to do hairdressing. I'm not a girly girl. Mm. I want to work in construction. <laughs> yeah. Now, this young woman doesn't know where to go besides her mm. provider mm. for advice about this. Yeah. I'm going to link her to somebody, but that shouldn't be a random thing. No, if it, this you bump is, into someone on the street, right? <laughs> absolutely. This goes to our argument that we need locally coordinated uh oversight and leadership by government but we also we've argued in our submission need walk-in jobs and skills centers mm. where all of the range of possible information that is needed could be made available to we're arguing not just people who are unemployed but people in career transitions yep. looking for their next opportunity or to look at the skills they've got that are no longer useful but could be translated or transferred to an new area without having to do an entire qualification from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, so people in career transitions, parents, teachers, and that will support better coordination for employers as well uh, so that they're not being approached by a range of individuals looking for jobs, a range of providers saying, let's work in partnership, uh, and a range of different random one-off projects. We need to have that central repository of industry and employer interface, yep. coordination to coordination of efforts uh, and that would also be the place where you might do things like explore where the cohorts might match better to types of jobs that are available. Yeah. 
It's an incredibly complex area of reform, really, uh, and I think it tends to be discussed in quite simplistic terms. Um, job providers bad, uh, you know, uh, punitive mutual obligations bad. Yes, they are. But the way that in which we construct this system, the amount of money that we spend on it, and I think the fundamental obligation as a society for us to support those that need the most support demands that we really overhaul this system. It's it's far too detailed for a 30-minute conversation, May, your <laughs> submission. Um, and I think that is pretty much all we have time for. But I would yep. encourage everyone to jump onto our website. Um, there's both the larger Workforce Australia submission and then the smaller sub you did earlier this year on Parents Next. And the committee made some very welcome recommendations. The government has agreed to scrap Parents Next. So that was a great outcome. And congratulations for your contribution to that. Um, May, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Um, we might have to do this again down the track uh, as we get the, the Workforce Australia inquiries on until late in the year. Um, we've it got is. a lot of work that we're going to be doing in this space, so we're certainly going to get you in to talk to us again on recap about that. Thanks, Emma. Thanks. Love to come. Thanks so much. <laughs> and do, as I said, uh, if you're interested in reading May's submission, head over to our website at percapita.org.au. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. We work to build a new vision for Australia based on fairness, shared prosperity, community and social justice. And we are committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. We also acknowledge that these were lands that were stolen, never ceded, and they were lands that were cared for by these First Nations for at least 60,000 years. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Join us next time when we'll continue to examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia.